Welcome to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP, helping you to operate profitably and adapt continuously. Host and moderator Bonnie D. Graham talks with the experts about how game-changing technologies can help you achieve financial excellence for your company. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Yes, indeed. Bonnie in the house. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, oh, come on. You know this is where the best run. And we are so excited. This is Season 9 of Financial Excellence with Game Changers, our longest-running series under the Game Changers umbrella. Let's see what the buzz on the street is today. I have a quote from an article in Digitalist Magazine at SAP. Listen up. We've come a long way in finance and accounting from purely manual bookkeeping carried out in large, dusty paper ledgers. I'm going to add, oh, no, through to Excel-based solutions and advanced accounting systems, we've been plunged into the exciting world of intelligent automation. That sounds great, doesn't it? So let me give you a little more background before I introduce my wonderful panelists. Finance is used to a white box approach. It's a set of tools for analysis. All logic and all steps can be traced. Audit trail, anyone? But they have something now called the black box approach, which is feared because the inner workings are hidden from view. Nobody in finance wants that, but it's needed for more complex processes. And finance is again on the forefront. They've been called techno laggards, but they're not anymore. They're adopting machine learning and artificial intelligence. Not new, but certainly disruptive technologies if you're using them for the first time. The first steps are usually transaction-oriented, sounds simple, but sophisticated scenarios are predictive using simulations with different combinations of drivers for more comprehensive decision support based on data. I know that was a packed line, but there's a lot of good information there. We have four panelists. Speaking of packed, we have a packed house today. Birgit Starman's at SAP, one of the sponsors of the show, has been a panelist. I think for all nine years, she keeps popping up on these panels, always has wonderful things to say. Rob Kugel is back from Ventana Research. Welcome back, Rob. And we Thank have you. two newcomers from Truqua. We have J.S. Eric and we have Daniel Satani. And they're going to talk about the real value of machine learning, the value on the bottom line. Isn't that what counts for finance? We know. And how it supports but not replaces the human decision-making process. And that's a fear everywhere that AI is going to take over and everything will be done by chatbots and fancy bots and this bots. No, no, no. Humans are still involved so you can keep your jobs. Join us for embracing machine learning and artificial intelligence in finance and risk. Really important topic. I am Bonnie D. Graham, as the gentleman at the opening said, and I have the privilege of being on Zoom with my panelists so I can see them. And I have to tell my listeners that you should be jealous because I can see a phenomenally fashionably dressed panel here. We, all of the three gentlemen, Rob and JS and Daniel, have picked shirts right out of some fancy dressing closet. I don't know, I don't know where they got them, but they all look phenomenally well dressed for radio. And we have the beautiful Birgis Diamonds with us, who is in a background uh, from uh, Bridge in the at the College of William and Mary, and she'll explain that later. But welcome everybody. We have a very important topic. Let's go around the table and have everybody introduce themselves. Just briefly, Birgit, you know what I like to say. If there's one person in the world who doesn't know who you are by now, too bad. But we'll let you introduce <laughs> yourself anyway. So, Birgit, you're up. Please please tell us what you do and briefly what's your passion for this topic. Go ahead, Birgit. Thank you, Bonnie. 
So um, I'm basically the global head for thought leadership for finance and strat and finance and risk um, from the Global Center of Excellence. And you know, this is really my dream job because I'm very passionate about finance. I'm very passionate about, I like to say my job is to make finance interesting. And I, I'm really excited about all the new developments that we have. And so in my role for thought leadership, I'm working across other teams within SAP, um, also generating some of my own content. And so there's a lot of writing, presentations, videos, and you know, I love it. And I've been doing SAP financial work for over 30 years, which is kind of scary. Um, first in consulting, then solution management, solution marketing, and now COE. And, and Birgit, what's your take on the opportunity for humans to still make decisions in finance, given all these, I'm just going to say new tools, new disruptive tools, because we know machine learning's been around, we know AI's been around, but they're beginning to be better understood and more broadly used, and finance is there. So Birgit, just briefly, what do you think? Is this a risky risk? Not really. I don't think anybody wants machines to take over the world. I think what we have here is the ability to make better decisions because, as you said, Bonnie, it's a tool. So it's not here to replace humans because there are some things that a machine can't decide. For example, in this pandemic, I mean, a machine will learn based on previous transactions, pre previous human interactions. But in something like a pandemic, we really don't have the history for that. We need the human elements um, in order to make a decision. And that's going to keep going forward. But the machine will give us more information about more, more scenarios than we previously had the opportunity to evaluate. So we can make better decisions, but it's still a human's decision. Thank you. Glad to hear that. We have heard the word. The show's over. We can stay. Thank you very much, Birgit. Pleasure to have you on, and thanks for putting together this panel. Let's introduce one of our newcomers now, J.S. Eric. He spells his last name I-R-I-C-K, and J.S., no periods, just two capital letters and nothing yep. in between at Truqua. J.S., please introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, all. Thank you so much uh, for having me on today, Bonnie. It's, it's really wonderful to be here with you, Rob, Birgit, and Daniel. So my name is J.S. Eirich. Uh, for once in a meeting like this, I get to tell my past uh, in a forward direction as opposed to working backwards. So I started with machine learning and artificial intelligence in the early 2000s uh, doing cancer research and then pivoted that into a position where I got to really you know, leverage machine learning and automation in a lot of interesting ways to support uh, medical psychology and economics research. And back in about 2012, a uh, collegiate running teammate of mine said that you have to get into this uh, SAP space, right? You'll travel the world, you'll solve big problems, and you'll work with just the, the most brilliant, wonderful people. And that's been very, very true. So at Truqua, I run our data science and AI and ML uh, practices, where we spend uh, the majority of our time working on helping companies not only embrace automation, but also drive better strategic decisions. Thank you. Thank you. And I said corrected, Eric. I pronounced it wrong and I apologize. I thought no that was an easy one. JS, what's your take on this about these tools, the black box versus the white box, the hidden versus the absolutely visible, fully transparent? What's your thought quickly on that? Yeah, I think that there's going to be a very interesting dichotomy between automation and prediction. So when I say automation, it's one where we don't care about the why right? We only care about being able to predict accurately. So you might think about, um, you know, you get a fraud alert on your phone, right? We don't care about the why. We think it's likely we're going to have an intervention that you control. 
Then there's more uh, strategic predictions, right? So to give an example from my past, if we're doing, you know, incidents of uh, cancer rate or recurrence, we care deeply about the why because the why drives what you can do about it. So I think there's going to be this really interesting split and the people or the organizations that get the most out of these new technologies are going to be the ones that have the best strategy around how to uh, choose. <laughs> Thank you very much. And, and I appreciate that background about the, the what and the why. Very interesting. Rob Kugel, you're back. You've been on so many shows over the years. I'm not going to say you could run the show yourself because only I could do that. But Rob, it's hap I'm happy to see you. And Rob, like Birgit and I, we've been on radio shows on phone, on phone lines for years and years and years. And Zoom now gives us a chance to actually see each other while we're speaking. Rob at Ventana Research. Rob, please reintroduce yourself to the world. I know they, they all know who you are. Oh, and yeah, sure. Your brief overview of, of what... <laughs> what your th what your thoughts are on this topic? Go ahead, Rob Kugel. Uh, well, I uh, run the uh, finance and uh, business practice at Ventana Research, which I've been doing for the past seventeen plus years. Um, I like to tell people I'm just like a lot of other <clears throat> technology analysts; like I'm really deep into the technology and the implications for the future. Uh, but I also, from time to time, read accounting bulletins because I think it's really important if you're going to be talking about finance and accounting that you understand uh, all of the minutia uh, that's uh, that's behind the, uh, the you know all of these systems uh, because the distance between the minutia and the strategic in the office of finance is, is very very small. Um, so what, what do I think about AI? I think it's, it's absolutely a, a, a fabulous evolution that we're looking at over the next couple of years uh, because I think the technologies are finally in place uh, to where we can practically apply AI to uh, a whole lot of what the finance and accounting organization does. And, you know, to JS's point, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, automating a lot of, of really trivial accounting functions, doing what I like to call it. It's not about putting robots into the accounting department. It's taking the robotic work out of the finance department. Um, and, uh, and in the FP&A, Financial Planning and Analysis Organization, uh, enabling much faster planning cycles, more accurate planning cycles, and more alerts using predictive analytics. Very interesting, taking the robotic processes out. Thank you, Rob. Good point of view. Appreciate that. And I uh, want to move on to our fourth panelist. He is on the phone. So if anybody sees the video, eventually we're going to stay on gallery view. It's Daniel Satani, also with Truqua. Daniel, please introduce yourself and happy to have you on. Go ahead. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Yeah, my name is Daniel Satani. And, and as you mentioned, I also work at Truqua. So I'm a data scientist and a solution architect. Um, you know, this topic is really near and dear to me because I've been personally involved in helping organizations, uh, specifically finance teams, embrace AI uh, to, to help make their processes better. And there's a very interesting evolution that occurs here because oftentimes when you first start, you're, you're focused on the technology aspect of it. And what it really does is, you know, as it evolves, it comes down into more of a, a personal issue. So just like any kind of technology, it's, it's not always all about the technology. Um, and that does kind of, in, in retrospect, impact how you implement these things. So, you know, I, you, you mentioned this briefly at the, at the beginning, in order for people to really understand and trust this, they need to 
um, well, they need to understand the technology and they need to get enough insight out of it so that it's not a black box approach so that you can, you can embrace it because effectively the, the finance people that are adopting this technology are going to be responsible for it if it's wrong. And that's a really critical component that, that needs to be addressed more so than just, can I get accurate predictions? Thank you very much. Daniel, welcome, and JS, welcome, our two newcomers. And let's go to the part of the show where I've asked my panelists to please send me a quote from a book, a movie, a song, a person, famous, not so famous, and they're going to be famous because they're on Game Changers Radio, and relate the quote, which has nothing to do with the topic, related to the topic. Let's make this a really fast, almost lightning round. So I will read a tiny bit of background on the source of your quote. We'll start with Birgit, and then JS, then Rob, and then Daniel, and I'll read the quote and take about... 90 seconds to two minutes tops to explain why you picked the quote. And then we'll get into our, our statements round our discussion round table. Mm -hmm. So Birgit sent us a quote from the film back to the future character of doc Brown says to Michael J. Fox roads where we're going. We don't need roads in the movie was 1985. So there, and we're talking about a time traveling DeLorean. Ooh, Birgit, what does this have to do with our topic? Go ahead. I, I, first of all, I'm a child of the 80s, so I absolutely had to pick something from the 80s. And I really love this quote it's because there are things in the future that we can't possibly imagine. And I remember starting work and we didn't even have cell phones. I mean, if you're going to meet somebody, you had to be there or you were just a no-show. You couldn't even tell people that you're going to be late. So the idea that we had cell phones and then now that we can't live without them or always carrying them around, it's it's pretty amazing actually and getting some of those fraud alerts that js was talking about as an example but in the future who knows because uh back in the back in back to the future all of a sudden you don't need roads anymore you don't have to worry about having enough room to get to 88 miles an hour and so we can't even imagine what the information superhighway is going to be looking like in the future but there are going to be things that we hadn't even thought about and there are going to be things where we're going to look at Star Trek and say, oh, yeah, I mean, they imagined that a long time ago. So we need to continue to evolve and be more productive. And allowing machines and automation to help us do that is, is the key. But I think there are going to be a lot of new experiences coming up, which we can't even imagine at this point. So I'm looking forward to, you know, it's a 35th anniversary, I think, of the show. So we'll see where we are in 35 years and see if we still need roads. Oh my, there's a Yiddish phrase, alavai, and in English I'll say we should live and be well. <laughs> okay, 35 years. By the way, if anybody else on this panel remembers not having a cell phone and not being able to tell people you're going to be late, but having to either get to a phone or, or send a smoke signal or do something, does anybody else remember working when there were no cell phones? Rob, do you remember? JS? JS? I remember my pager. Uh, pager. <laughs> Daniel? Daniel, do you remember? Yes, absolutely. Okay, I just wanted I to make sure, sure I, I didn't want Birgit and me to be the only one. So I, <laughs> I want, you know, okay, let's go on. Uh, J.S. Eirich has sent us a quote from John Steinbeck, 1902 to 1968, American author, won the Nobel Prize in 62 in literature for his realistic and imaginative writings, combining as they do sympathetic humor and keen social perception. Anybody doesn't recognize his name. He wrote Tortilla Flat. He wrote Cannery Row. He wrote Of Mice and Men. I think that was required reading when I was in high school. And The Grapes of Wrath. That was one of his masterpieces. Here's the quote. No one wants advice, only corroboration. Ooh, I think this is very true. <laughs> JS, how'd you find this one? Go ahead. Oh, man. Well, I mean, Steinbeck's such an incredible author. And um, I'm glad we're finally uh, 
in a time where we can read everything of his. But, uh, you know, I think that I look back at, you know, everything I've been lucky enough to work on in my life. And that includes, you know, not only research, but finance, as well as, you know, coaching, running and weightlifting. And there hasn't been a single time where I've been able to help someone achieve something that they didn't want to do. Right. You can, you're not, you're not even going to be able to lead the horse to water. Let's be honest. Right. So I think that when we look at these technologies and we look at adoption, you have to have a desire or a need that, that you're actually, you know, want to fulfill and that has the backing of your organization and your team. Right. So, you know, Daniel does wonderful, um, speaking around the process of getting an organization to trust the results or to explain the results from any predictive technology, right? And if there is an intransigence or a lack of desire to leverage these technologies, then you're not going to achieve any of your, your stated goals, right? So, you know, I think that there's, um, you know, there's no shame in, in picking the right place to start and expanding from there, right? So I'd really, that's my advice is to <laughs> find the thing you want to be doing with these technologies. Don't be adopting just to adopt. Very, very good point. We've heard that advice, find a use case, find a reason to do it, find a, something you need it for rather than just, oh, I saw it on the shelf. I think I'll buy it and see what it can do for me. You need, you need to have some logic to it. Thank you very much, JS. Rob Kugel has sent us a quote from Helen Keller. Helen Adams Keller, 1880 to 1968, American author, political activist, lecturer. She was the first deaf-blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts College degree, and her story was made famous in the film and stage play and movie, The Miracle Worker, about working with her teacher, Ann Sullivan. Very, very famous. I remember watching. And Patty Duke played, on, played her on Broadway. What a moment in time. Here's the quote Rob has selected. Optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope and confidence. Rob, I want to cry. This is such a heavy quote. Tell me, how does this apply to our topic today? <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I, I think all of us here, um, and probably most of the people listening to us, um, are looking to the future with a great deal of hope and wanting to make it all work. Um, what mind can conceive, man can achieve. Of a well-worn phrase, but I think that's why we're so fascinated with the potential for AI, because it is such a potentially transformative technology uh, that we can be very optimistic that the world of work in the future is going to be much better for the people working uh, than it is today. Well, there is optimism and faith. Thank you very much, Rob. I appreciate that. That's a broad brush optimism. And right now, Rob, that's what the world needs, right? We all need faith, optimism, <laughs> love, and good quotes. And thank you. For, I've never heard that one from Helen Keller. So thank you. And let me move on. Daniel Satani has picked a quote from a movie. We have two movie quotes today. This is from Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator by Roald Dahl. It's a sequence to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which everybody knows. Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator is a children's book by British author. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Raoul. It's like Ronald without the N. Roald Dahl. It is a sequence to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, continuing the story of young Charlie Bucket and chocolatier Willy Wonka as they travel in the great glass elevator. The book was published in the U.S. in 1972, and Mr. Dahl was a British novelist, short story writer, poet, screenwriter, and wartime 
fighter pilot. His books have sold just a mere 250 million copies around the world. So there, and I know he does some very funny, uh, almost fractured fairy tale types of things because I've done some some uh, exercises here in my community on uh, cold reading and interpretation, and I picked some of his short stories, and they're wonderful to read aloud. So Daniel, here's the quote you have selected. We have so much time and so little to do. No, wait, strike that, reverse it. I hope I did that right. Daniel, talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, so this is just one of my, uh, one of my favorite authors. I rediscovered him recently reading, reading his stories that I used to love as a child to my, my own children. Um, but I think that this quote is very appropriate for the, the topic that we're talking about today, because this is something you'd never hear somebody say in the, in the positive, the first piece where, you know, we have so much time and so little to do, you know, it's quite the contrary. And as Rob had mentioned, what we're really talking about when we're, or at least piece, a piece of what we're talking about with adopting AI and finance is that we're going to be taking a lot of those more mundane tasks and uh, freeing up people's time to do the more creative work that has more value and is hopefully more enjoyable by them. So, um, you know, I think that's what I think of when I think of this quote and, Oh, just a, also a very funny part of the movie. Thank you very much. We love movie quotes. I appreciate it. Thank you all for taking the time to pick such interesting and relevant quotes and for explaining them. A lot of optimism out there, and I appreciate that. So do our listeners. Let's go to the part of the show, which is our deep dive into the roundtable of what is this topic really all about. And if you're just tuning in, this is Financial Excellence with Game Changers Radio, Episode 8, Season 9. I'm keeping count. You don't have to. We are live here. It's Tuesday, August 11, 2020. Can't wait for this year to be over. And the topic is embracing machine learning and artificial intelligence in finance and risk. And we have a wonderful panel today. We have Birgit Starmans. We have J.S. Eirich. We have Rob Kugel and Daniel Satani. So let's do our deep dive here into the topic. And Birgit has sent me the following. This is your statement number one, Birgit. She said, there is often a distrust of machine learning until finance and risk teams feel they have proof. I'm going to stop right there, Birgit, and ask you to unpack this. Take about two minutes, and then we'll go around the table and see if your co-panelists agree or disagree. Let's see if anybody dares to disagree. Go ahead, Birgit. I dare you. <laughs> I, I would say that until somebody trusts the decision, they're not going to act on it. And a lot of times when we look at uh, implementations, there are a lot of rules that we can figure in tables. So you can always go back and say, well, why did the computer make a certain decision? And you can always point to a table entry and you can say, oh yeah, because I configured this rule, it does X, Y, Z. Now, right, we can't look at a table because machine learning doesn't go back and write a physical configuration table that you can change, but it learns. And I like to think of it to, that it learns the way that a human learns. Because when we're kids, I mean, there's no graph that says, well, this surface is too hot to touch, this surface is okay to touch, etc. And, you know, a kid gets burnt a couple times on the stove and they learn not to touch it. But there's no checklist that somebody goes through. You just know, right? You look at it, the, the fire is burning, you're not going to touch it. But there's no, no rule that we really look at to do that. So I like to think of machine learning and artificial intelligence as the machine really learning in the same way. Now, understanding where it comes from helps with the trust. And when it comes to the transactions, then we can take a look at the transactions that the machine would have posted without us. And once we can see within a certain tolerance that we would have done the same thing, we'll just let it go. 
But when it comes to the more predictive scenarios, this is really where we need the human element to be able to look at the recommendations that now the machine can recommend something, but based on maybe company politics or uh, global economic environments, we might not want to go a certain route, which you know, just six months ago would have been the right route to take. So the human element also ha always has to be a factor. But then we can at least trust where that recommendation came from, because it learned not only from previous computer transactions, but also what people did in order to handle exceptions. And it learns from that as well. So it's becoming more human, but it's never going to replace humans. Well, thank goodness for that. Let's go around the table. Agree or disagree, J.S. Eirich, you're up first. <laughs> I'll give the most uh, the most milk toast disagreement ever here, which is just <laughs> that people trust it too much until the first time it makes a decision they care about, and then they want to see the proof, right? So, you know, and I, and I do it myself all the time, right? We say, okay, well, we're just going to make a machine do it, and the first answer comes down the, the pipe, right? And we say, oh, well, wait, wait, why? Right. And it's, it's so common and so natural that I have to laugh a bit. But, you know, there's a whole, you know, a lot of the most interesting research in this field comes around how you take uh, something like machine learning that's very based in randomness. And that's a big part of its power. So traditional statistics, you really worry about a local minima or a local maxima, right, where we found the best solution in this tight space. And if I move a bit to the left, it's not any better. And I move a bit to the right, it's not any better. Right? So we're, we're going to stay there. We'll say that's the best answer. And when you look at these more random uh, algorithms or random ways of uh, generating algorithms, you have to make those big hops. Right? And so now there's fascinating research around almost reverse engineering the why. And I think that's one of the things that... Um, you know, when I, if I'm looking at, at papers to read for the week, explanations and, um, you know, the, the way to provide that proof is probably the first thing I go to on a week-to-week -week basis because it's where some of the most interesting work is being done. And I think that, um, you know, Birgit has a fantastic point that, you know, the human intervention, either when the algorithm self-identifies that it's not confident in its answer, or if you're looking at a backwards perspective and identifying scenarios where artificial intelligence or machine learning is not providing a good answer, then that is where the human intervention comes in. And you can have these very interesting processes of retraining where you've identified an area of, of weakness in what you've built and using the human interaction to kind of override those decisions, it becomes part of the training and retraining set to lead to a more complete solution long-term. So very, very interesting discussion prompt, Birgit. Thank you. Good disagree, agree. I like that. Rob Kugel, which side of the fence are you sitting on? Join me. Oh, well, I uh, <laughs> agree with JS uh, because I think that's exactly right. We trust stuff that is of little consequence and anything that confirms our own biases. Um, the real challenge here, I think, is <clears throat> so much of, of where analytics pays off is, is being able to deliver a counterintuitive result by sifting through a lot of data. And we, we wind up with uh, a suggestion to do something that we say, huh? And it actually turns out to be 
the right way to do it. So the uh, one of the better examples is is the let's make a deal. Um, you know which which uh, you know curtain do you choose? Well, it turns out to not be that one. Should you stick with the one that you originally chose? And the answer is no. Go to the other one because the odds are that's going to be the right choice. So we have uh, plenty of examples of that. I don't think the accounting finance people are any different than anybody else, except perhaps like engineers, they absolutely want everything to tick and tie. Everything has to be proven. Yes, maybe they're a little more compulsive, but um, I think the challenge here is in those uh, situations where you're presenting somebody with something that might be counterintuitive, that the system is able to explain it in a way that everyone can understand. Thank you. Interesting. I feel like we're writing a primer, a primer, a handbook for why people would want to go into the finance field now. You've just talked about the personas and the need to know and the need to trust. Thank you, Daniel Satani. We have to get your point of view on this. Please join us. So I'm going to agree and disagree. I'm going to agree with the main premise here that you need to be able to uh, provide some proof in terms of why you're giving the suggestions that you're giving. The one point, and it's a, a little bit to the side here, uh, in terms of machine learning, learning the way that people do, um, it, it does in a certain way, but there's a big difference, and that comes with, with bias. So when you're looking at the way machine learning learns, it goes over a number of samples over and over again, and even if there's one sample that, that may kind of shift it into a different direction, it's not going to materially impact the, the overall prediction. Um, if you look at people, we can have events, <coughs> excuse me, we can have events in our lives where it, it has a, a very strong, uh, really changes the way that we look at the world or that we look at something in front of us. And that's where machine, uh, machine learning doesn't have that same issue. Um, I mean, it, it can, depending on the samples you're giving it, but all other things equal, it's a much more mathematical approach to it than the way that, that we learn. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with the way that we learn, it's just different. And that's really where a lot of the power comes from is you've got these two different ways of looking at it, um, but you need that proof to be able to make the proper decision at the end. Thank you very much. We, Birgit, that was probably one of the most interesting agree-disagree conversations we've ever had on this series. I agree with you. <laughs> nine years. That was great. Thank you. We always, to our listeners, I always give my panelists when we do our prep calls the permission in advance to understand they can disagree. And if they agree, not to just say, I agree and stop, because then the show is over, to add some thought <laughs> leadership. And, and this panel is just rocking this. Thank you very much. Let's move on, J.S. Eirik, I've got your last name right now. Statement number two, you told me the following before the show. You said, those that approach AI as a technical challenge are going to find themselves at an extreme disadvantage to those who look to create solutions. And JS, I want to add your statement number four to that. I think they go hand in hand. So permit me, dealer's choice, uh, and then we can expand it a little. You say, not all decisions and data are created equal. The best tools are the ones that help you to prioritize your limited resources. So I'm combining that with the idea of creating solutions. I hope that's okay. So Absolutely. JS, let's unpack these two. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I'll make sure to, to still keep it within the, the time rails, but the, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, honestly, the best way to look at this is to, to take a step back and talk about what what I see over the last ten years of implementing, you know, planning and and strategic decision making solutions, which is that within any organization you have so much insight and intelligence that that you're not using these days, right? So generally, if we're looking at a digital uh, financial transformation, 
I come in and I, you know, we have kind of the high level requirements or how people think these decisions get made. And then we start talking to, you know, dozens of dozens of folks in an organization that are doing a parallel task, right? We'll just say that, for example, we're looking at, at sales planning, right? And there's so many innovative and clever and unique ways to approach the problem. And it's a big challenge to identify and promote the things that really work, right? And that's going to be the exact same way with, with AI. You can make the best fitting model in the world. You can make the most accurate, explainable predictions. But if it's not getting in front of the right people and it's not informing and helping you to, to make your decisions, then it's not going to be adopted and it's not giving you any help. And, um, you know, uh, Birgit had a wonderful point about, you know, not being able to adapt to data it's never seen in, in some scenarios. And that's the same way with planning or with building a solution, right? You need the ability to, for example, do a manual override, right? I know the model said this, but I literally just called the customer and they told me that based on a new product that, that we've never seen, they're going to be increasing their order here, right? So that unpacks the, the first half. And just to be very brief on the second, I will say that don't take any technical solution as an all or nothing item, right? If we're looking at automation, you don't have to do automation for every single uh, time a given scenario comes up. So we'll just, we'll keep it on sales planning, for example. If you can automate, uh, you know, the 90% of the data that's not a key driver to your bottom line or isn't as strategically impactful and allow your team members to spend their time on that 10%, the critical new products, uh, the largest customers, uh, the customers where the algorithm says we're at risk of losing the business, right? That's going to be where you take the best advantage. So, you know, just as um, we don't want a black box, we also don't want a solution that we try to automate away everything. Let's spend our time where we can make the most difference. Thank you very much. Rob Kugel, join us. Thoughts? Now I'll say it again. Agree or disagree? Where are you sitting on this one, Rob? Uh, well, on this topic, it's all over the place. Um, but uh, just, I think, to take, you know, starting with, with JS's example, um, I think uh, AI has got the ability in any kind of organization where you've got sales planning and manufacturing planning, um, you know, the, the tension is that the salespeople think in terms of money and the manufacturing people or the operational people think about the stuff that they've got to deliver. So I think that's that, that, that what you can do with AI, for example, is to marry up uh, your experience on, you know, account by account, what does this dollar amount translate into things that we're selling? Not just the things we've been selling, but perhaps even, uh, you know, the replacement SKUs that we might have. So that we now have uh, a, a starting place to have a sales and operations planning discussion uh, at a fairly detailed level without anybody having to really lift a finger. And it's about adjusting expectations, about adjusting production and, 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 and sales expectations uh, to be able to get to a starting point uh, in these discussions that's a lot more productive uh, than simply hunting and pecking, which is what we're doing today. Thank you very much. Daniel Satani, love to have you join us. Which side are you on? Agree, disagree? So I'll, I'll, I'll agree and, and elaborate a little bit. Um, so I completely agree in terms of, you know, looking at this for more of just a technical challenge. Um, but I do want to point out that when we're looking at 
these AI-based solutions, it's really important to know that AI isn't doing all of this. So even in the solution that Rob was just describing, you'd have quite a bit of software that was probably talking to a series of different AI models to try to figure out where that starting point would be. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a, I'd like to step back to the whole solution approach that JS ta talked about. And when we're talking about AI, it's not a panacea. It doesn't solve all the problems. It's just another tool. And in order to look at this effectively, we need to start the process with what Rob was saying, right? So we need, what is your goal? Your goal is not to create an accurate model for sales. Your goal is not to create an accurate model for operations or how they translate. Your goal is to get to that starting point between those two processes to have a, a broader conversation and to optimize your outcome. And so in order to really do this, you need to look at the bigger picture and that's where you need to start. And it all goes back to, again, having a pain point that you're trying to solve and then addressing this with AI being one of those tools in your toolbox. Thank you. Birgit, you want to wrap this session up, this part of our discussion? Go ahead. Sure. And uh, what can I say? Agree, agree, agree. It's not technology for technology's sake, I think is, is the critical piece. Because at the end of the day, you can always make the technology work. I mean, even back in my consulting days, the biggest challenge was to get exactly different team members to agree on how we should be doing things. So you're bringing manufacturing to the table, you're bringing sales to the table, you're bringing some auditors to the table, you name it, um, even human resources. And getting them all to agree is the biggest challenge. I think the easier part is really, quote unquote, making the technology actually do it. And a lot of times people will say, well, this is a really cool little feature. Let's use it. Well, then the question is, what are you using it for? And I used to say, what question, what, what question are you going to be able to answer based on this? What decision are you going to make based on the information that you're getting? And if it's just that it's a cool tool, it's not really helping the process. So it's also being able to identify why you're using the technology and why you want to put certain things in place. And my other joke was always, how many ways can you clear an open item? Well, in a lot of different ways. And especially when you're starting to look at how you might want to do it in the future, it's a whole different twist, but we can always make technology do what we wanted to, but then are we going to give tech, are we going to give ourselves the freedom to say, well, let's not just think within the box, but let's take a look at some of these more random, random answers and see if we can at least consider them. Thank you. JS, wonderful statement around the table there. Thank you. Rob Kugel, I'm looking at your statement number one. This is provocative. Everybody just sit, sit tight. We're going to take a ride with this one. Rob says, data is the root of all evil in enterprise computing. I'm not even going to read the rest of it. I want Rob to explain it. So Rob, go ahead. <laughs> garbage in, garbage out. I go. Oh. <laughs> and that's been, um, you know, something that we've known about for decades in, uh, in, in, in computing. Um, and I think it's especially important to keep in mind when we start to talk about the brilliant future of, of artificial intelligence using machine learning, that you can have the spiffiest algorithms in the world, but if you have lousy data, um, data that's incomplete, data that's inconsistent, um, data that is just wrong, um, that you're going to have a hard time training a system to do what you want it to do. Um, the, the problem with data <clears throat> is that it's nobody's business, um, nobody's responsibility in, in organizations. It's just kind of this amorphous thing. And it's so much work that nobody really wants to do it. And by the way, it's really, really dismally dull to have to do that stuff. So 
one of the, the, the actual applications of AI and machine learning is, is maybe data cleansing uh, to you know, come up with a way in which you can very quickly process data uh, to, to be able to make it uh, consistent, make it clean, uh, identify errors and, and begin the process of, of correcting it. But I think more importantly, uh, we need to be you know, within, within corporations, uh, organizations need to be organizing their systems in a way uh, that take, uh, that, that make, make it difficult, if not impossible, to introduce errors um, into the process, uh, a way of, of ensuring, as in manufacturing, uh, that you wind up with uh, a process that uh, reduces the probability, hopefully to zero, of, of entering errors in the system so that at the end you've got something that's a lot cleaner rather than having to rely in the end on cleaning up that mess. Thank you. Let's go around the table. Daniel Satani, you're sitting next to Rob, whether you knew it or not, around our virtual roundtable. So <laughs> what say you, agree or disagree? Where are we going with this? Oh, I, for, I, I agree. I love the topic. I'm, I'm going to agree in a little different angle, um, but, but I definitely agree. I mean, I think one of the problems that we see now is that data has, has gotten so much hype and in some cases for good reason, in some cases not. And so when businesses look and they start looking at, at AI, uh, AI and data are synonymous in many ways. So everybody says, you know, AI is all about the data, um, but Rob is completely right. It's about having the right data. And in all too many cases, the data is, is not right. I mean, from a transactional perspective, oftentimes the data is good enough. If we're looking at things around planning or forecasting, you know, there's a lot more bias in those processes. And so that gets a lot more difficult. So um, one of the things that, that, that I've, I've done with, with many different finance teams is take this approach and look at it with data outside of their organization. Um, and this is an, as a way to decrease the bias. So we would look at macroeconomic factors. You'd look at, uh, you know, different sector information about wherever that organization is. But by using that type of data, you can actually kill two birds with one stone by getting uh, quality data. Uh, oftentimes things that can also be predicted with some accuracy in the future, which is a key part to, to being able to do that type of machine learning. And, and also just to remove the bias because it's something that's beyond the scope of the, the, the organization's control, which also means that a decision can't be made that will you know, completely change the way tomorrow looks. Thank you. Interesting, Daniel. You just covered parts of your statement number two and number three, which I was going to go to next, and I'm reading them and tracking <laughs> along with you, and I'm saying, he just hit all of these high points, but we'll go to your statement number four when we get around to you. So let's go around the table. <laughs> next, uh, Birgit, you're sitting next to, let's see, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. Yes, Birgit, you're sitting next to Daniel. So go ahead, Birgit. What do you have to say about Rob's point? We're talking evil data here. Go ahead, Birgit. Well, data is not necessarily evil, uh, but I would say it's not always consistent. And this is because we tend to store it in so many different places. And wasn't that why we started ERP in the first place? Because everybody had a different definition of what they meant by a certain term. Uh, what are the number of employees? Um, are you talking to HR, which also has to deal with retirement? Are you including manufacturing, which has some part-time workers? Yeah. Are you dealing with finance, who sometimes hires an intern to input data? So it's not always consistent, especially as we move data from one system to another so that somebody else can touch it. And because of that, we have data in different locations. And 
here comes the human element again. Sometimes in our effort to simplify things, we insert logic as it moves from one system to the other. And when that happens, then everybody downloads all these tables and they don't tie. Well, it's because of something that somebody put into some kind of a transfer program. And so this kind of leads me to say, just because it's manual doesn't mean that it's more accurate or better because a human designed how things are going to move from one system to the other by inserting logic. And just because somebody sits at a keyboard with their 10 finger integration doesn't mean it's going to be more accurate. So sometimes the machine really does improve what we're doing, but it is all about data, but it's not evil. It's just, it's siblings um, squabbling with each other, I think, because they're coming from different angles. I've never heard of 10 finger integration. <laughs> really? Oh my God. I was laughing about that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Data is like siblings squabbling. Bridget, you've got so many quotable moments here. I want to, we're looking at the clock here. I want to keep moving. JS Irick, what are your thoughts on data is not evil inherently, but it could be if it's squabbling with other people. JS, yeah, what do you absolutely. think? <laughs> so, I mean, from a more you know, traditional garbage in, garbage out perspective, everyone knocked it out of the park. So where I can provide a little bit of value in a short time here is to talk about good data that's uh, causing similar issues. So Rob's sort of reminding me with it, with his, um, with his little electroencephalogram icon up, up and to the right, right, where, you know, we had a, a scenario where we're looking at social isolation as a, as a health impact, right? And we were leveraging what's called the UCLA loneliness scale, which for 40 years has been the premier way to measure it. So we had the right self-reported data, but it turns out that, you know, for the health impacts we were looking at people from a health perspective, don't tend to, to self-report uh, loneliness as a factor of social isolation. So we had to find a new way to get at that impact, but you would never anticipate not wanting to use that data set there right? It's a good data set. It's a strong data set for what it measures. But for what we were trying to achieve, we had to look elsewhere. And similarly, when, um, you know, for Daniel's birthday, a couple of years back, I set up integration between our data lake and uh, what's called Edgar, which is the SEC and the US government data source for public financials, right? And we do a lot of work looking at industry levels for macroeconomic factors, not only for, for training our team, right, but also, uh, you know, to provide insights or to try to, um, you know, better understand the, you know, the, the publicly available data. And one of the things we, we always have to look out for there is that our industry comparables, if you're looking externally, you have to make sure that, uh, you know, for example, there were no major uh, merger or acquisition scenarios there right? Because we're looking at top line revenue, but things can really change when you make a, you know, have a large strategic acquisition, right? So is it good data? Well, yeah, it's perfect data, right? It's, it's the numbers they went to the SEC with, right? But at the same time, we're having to either exclude that from the data set or, or back it out, right? So even with perfect data, you're going to have confounding factors that you need to account for. And I do think that there's definitely a place in, in finance and in, uh, you know, to leverage technologies like auto ML, which are very, um, you know, factor agnostic and care most about the fit, as well as kind of the small batch artisanal 
algorithms where you're very carefully picking each feature you want to put into a model or you want to train on. Thank you, Rob. Great conversation. Thank you for that. I'm looking at the clock. We have seven minutes left to this live show. I'm going to squeeze in one more topic here. Daniel, I don't want you to feel left out, even though you've already covered your statement two and three, which I appreciate. I always told you, don't save it. Use your information. So I'm going to read this one very quickly here. There's one sentence, and I'm going to use this as your prediction, Daniel, whether you like it or not, because we usually do crystal ball (laughs) predictions at the end. So this is going to be your prediction. And why don't you take a whole two minutes for this, and then we'll go around the table quickly with everybody for your own predictions, okay? So Daniel's prediction, I'm just giving it to you because it's right here, is businesses that harness AI to inform strategy will win the future. If that's not a prediction, I don't know what is. So Daniel, take two minutes and then quickly we'll go around Birgit and then JS and then Rob. Go ahead, Daniel. Got it. So so first off, let me just say that I'm happy that I spoiled uh, statements two and three with this one (laughs) because they all build on each other. So when we're talking about strategy, you know, I alluded to this a little bit in the last, uh, the last conversation was that, um, you know, there are different types of data on many levels, but I'm going to break it down in this way that we have data that's outside of the company. That's usually less filled with bias. And then we have data inside the company that's more filled with bias. And one of the reasons that data can be more filled with bias is because they are levers within our control. So we can decide how we want to allocate resources and including those types of things where you, it's a decision point are, traditionally horrible things to include in a model if you're trying to accomplish, if you're trying to get accuracy. If that's what your goal is, you don't want that. And the reason for that is because they could change on a day-to-day basis. Somebody high enough up in the company could wake up tomorrow and say, you know what, we're not doing this, we're doing that. And then all of your models are gone. So that's why, you know, generally speaking, we would go on, you know, look at those macroeconomic features for accuracy. However, that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of value there. And kind of the next level after you get to these accurate models where you can start forecasting better and things like that and understanding how your business operates in the market is to start building models that include those items that that are the levers under your control and then use those to optimize how how you should be moving those levers. So how should I be doing my trade spend? How should I be doing my sales? Um, Moving forward, I really do think that's where the, where the industry is going to lead us. Um, and I think companies that, that figure out how to do this right are just going to be making much better decisions and, and therefore operating at a much higher level. So thank you. Thank you very much. We have time for about 45 seconds each. I'll leave it up to you, either your own crystal ball prediction or quickly agree or disagree with Daniel Satani. Birgit, you're up first. Go, vite, vite, as they say in French. Fast, fast. Um, I think uh, I'll piggyback on that because my prediction is that we're going to be more inclusive when it comes to data. We used to talk about structured and unstructured data, and we only looked at structured data and never the unstructured data, which are, you know, from a transactional level, all of those PDFs and emails and those kinds of things that are, that are flying around. So we need to include more sources of data because that'll give us a more balanced view. And I think that we're moving that way. But then just in psychology 101, the way that you select your sample is going to determine the answer that you get. So we can actually bias the result that even AI comes with by depending on what kind of information we feed it. So I see a need for a trend to be more inclusive, including all points of view and all data in order to come up with the right decision. And a lot of that information is going to be unstructured going forward. So we need to keep figuring out how to include social media responses to something a company did, to financial results, 
um, videos, et cetera. So the definition of unstructured data is definitely going to change and expand. What a thought. Unstructured data in finance? Oh, my. JS, you're next. Veet, veet. 40 seconds. Go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. So I do think there's going to be something very positive which comes from the vetting of any model or any uh, artificial intelligence or automation, which is we're going to start looking at which folks in our organization are doing a great job with either prediction or manual tasks, right? And we're going to start promoting their insights and their best practices. And I think we're going to continue to democratize uh, the finance functions, especially when it comes to planning and strategic decision-making. So I'm really excited for the next 10 years, not just from this you know, more technical discussion, but I really do see more and more voices uh, in an organization uh, having a seat at the table, and it's, it's very exciting. Thank you. A lot of optimism. Rob Kugel, wrap it up. 30 seconds. They're all yours. Go. All right. Technology is going to have a more profound impact on accounting and finance over the coming decade uh, than, than technology has had on it uh, over the past 50 years. Uh, I think unseen, a lot of really subtle but very important changes are taking place. And all of those things will, in the end, wind up making uh, finance and accounting organization much more of a strategic partner because with the rest of the organization because it's going to be spending more time serving their needs than their own internal uh, minutia. Oh, that's a good one. Then the minutia. Thank you. We like to end on a minutia note. Thank you, Rob. Sorry to cut you short. I want to say thank you to the two sponsors of this series, Birgit Starman, so one and only Birgit here, and Chris Grundy, who I understand is taking a well-deserved vacation, ninth season of financial excellence. And I want to thank our panelists, and I'll do that in a second. Thank you to Aaron, our engineer extraordinaire. Uh, he's only in his 20s, but he's got he's just like a like a I don't know. He just knows what to do. Aaron, we appreciate you very much. And here's my call to action. And here's where I'm going to thank all of you. Everyone fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Just like Birgit Starman's. Everybody clap for Birgit. Yay. Just like J.S. Irick at Truqua. Yay. Just like Rob Kugel at Ventana Research. Yay. And just like Daniel Satani at Truqua as well. I'm Bonnie D. Graham signing off. And remember, go out and be a game changer. I don't know about you fastening your seatbelt, but my car is getting about two and a half months to the gallon, and I hope yours is doing just as well. Have a great day, everyone. Be safe, <laughs> be smart, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Financial Excellence with Game Changers, presented by SAP, helping you to operate profitably and adapt continuously. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to hashtag SAPRADIO and join host Bonnie D. Graham on the Business Channel, wishing you a game-changing week.